and I'm looking forward to seeing what the culmination of this dogmatic theology is between all of them. It's, uh, it came in perfect order, and I, I look forward to it. And the person that's going to be doing it tonight is Stephen. So if you would join us. So be blessed, take notes, hammer him with questions. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. Good evening. Catholicism. So this is, isn't an abstract one, right? I think we probably all know, um, probably have family that came from or still is in Catholicism. And so as we, as we go through it, uh, we have to be cognizant of that, that fact that um, there's a lot of people we know and love that are strongly held beliefs, and uh, we're not here to tear uh, them down, but we want to uh, look at the history of the church, the Roman Catholic Church, and look at uh, its beliefs and, and just uh, to go through that and uh, maybe hopefully equip you for ways you can uh, uh, know what it's about and uh, uh, where, where your loved ones are coming from. So let's pray and then we can get on into it. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, this evening, and uh, we thank you for, most of all, Lord, just sending your Son, that we have the hope of heaven, Lord, that you sent him down here to, to live a sinless life and to die and to be uh, resurrected to conquer sin and death. Lord, I ask that you would uh, speak through me and uh, get me out of the way so that we can convey uh, your truth and uh, point out uh, error where needed, Lord. Um, we ask for a blessing upon the service, upon the youth, Lord, and upon the, the leaders there. And we lift this up to you and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Roman Catholicism. Uh, along with the Ethern. Orthodox and Protestant, those are the three main branches of Christianity. Uh, Catholicism is, has been a powerful force in Western civilization, especially in Western civilization, uh, throughout the last 2,000 years. Uh, there are over a billion, according to the research I did, it sounds like a lot, but over a billion Roman Catholics, or people who call themselves Roman Catholics, uh, that's more than all the rest of the Christians combined. Uh, that's more than any than Buddhists. That's more than Hindus. Um, it's not as many as uh, Muslims. But if you split the Shia and the Sunni, um, Catholics still outnumber either of those individually. So we're talking about a lot of people who believe or who adhere, at least to the name uh, Catholic. I, I would question how many of them know all of the details we're going to go into tonight. And if they did know, they may want to question some of it. The word Catholic from the Greek, Catholicos, which is basically Catholic, it means universal. So the universal, the one true church, that's what they were going for. And, and the universal church, that's a, in the early church, that was a good goal, right? So have one church, have one belief system, uh, stick to the truth. Um, and that's where it started. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that you don't have people coming along and adding to it. You want to make sure people 
uh, don't come along and say, ah, oh, that Jesus part, we don't need that, right? So they were, they were very interested in having one church and one true church and one true belief system. So from the very early church, uh, there were those who wanted to, to take the work and the life of Jesus and then use it for their own ends, right? For the, um, use it for their own benefits, uh, put in their own agenda. And even uh, Paul wrote about this uh, many times in his letters. In, in Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So obviously when Paul was writing these, these epistles, uh, 70, 80 AD, there was already people diverging, right? And uh, also 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one, from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, uh, you put up with it readily enough. And so he's warning there that um, we need to look out for the error, and we need to look out for uh, incorrect teaching. Uh, we also need to to recognize that right at the beginning of the church, there, there wasn't a New Testament, right? So there was the Old Testament, and there was still some debate on which books were canon even in the Old Testament. So right at the beginning, um, everybody's still figuring out, and so the church relied on the authority of the apostles, right? The 12 plus Paul, um, and of their letters, of their writings, of, of their councils. And so they would get together. Uh, one example of this is the Council of Jerusalem, where Paul came after his first missionary trip and asked uh, to get clarification about Gentiles and how the church should treat them and whether they were, uh, whether they needed to adhere to the Mosaic Law. So there was, uh, there was the the actual apostles while they were alive. There was the letters and the writings. There was the councils where they'd get together and agree agree and debate on what and decide on doctrine. And so, right at the beginning, we can't just say, let's stick to the scriptures, because they were still being written. So, the history of the early church is, in fact, the history is also the Catholic church history, because right at the beginning, they're intertwined. Uh, for centuries, they're one and the same. Uh, to give you appreciation of how intertwined they are, and I, until I was doing this research, I didn't really realize this. I guess it makes sense, but I hadn't realized it. So. Let me give you just a rundown, and sorry for all the dates, but hopefully it gives you a flavor of, of how intertwined they are. So the first 70 years after Christ. So 30 AD starts out Peter and his uh, sermon, right, where he converts the 3,000 after Pentecost. Uh, 46 AD, Paul begins his missionary journey. So we're 16 years in now. Um, 50 AD is the Council of Jerusalem I just mentioned, where they're, where they're deciding on uh, gen Gentile practice. Uh, by 64, so we're 34 in, Nero starts persecuting the Christians. Uh, around 65 AD, the Gospel of Mark is completed, and then you guys can quibble with me on these dates. Uh, there is no, absolutely no consensus on when these are written. I, I read five or six different versions, and this is the best I can get to. Um, 
some as early as 50 and some as early as 80, or late as 80. Um, but, but we're going to go with 65 for the Gospel of Mark. So we're uh, 35 years in before we get our first written gospel. 67 AD, Paul and Peter are both martyred in Rome or near Rome. That same year, Linus becomes the first bishop of Rome, so he's the first pope. Um, and he's one of two, possibly two, popes that are mentioned in the New Testament. Second uh, Timothy 4.21 mentions, it says, Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings at, to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. So it's just Linus is, Linus is mentioned as being a minister or ministering in Rome. 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. 79 AD, Anticletus, who's also known as Cletus, for those who are uh, into this, uh, he becomes the second bishop or second pope of Rome. Um, around 80, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are completed, as well as the Book of Acts. In 88, Clement becomes the third pope. Uh, he's uh, mentioned in, in Philippians 4.3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers who are named in the book of life. So I, I'm just reading those just to kind of make the connection that there were people who ended up as popes mentioned in the New Testament. I thought it was interesting that... Uh, Right from the start, they're already, uh, they've already got the bishop in Rome. They're already starting to accumulate power. Um, 95 AD, Gospel of John and, and Revelation are completed. And around 100, John uh, dies in Ephesus. So by the time John dies at 100 AD, uh, Rome's already on their third pope. Um, over the next centuries, there's tons of councils um, to clarify doctrines, uh, they clarify the doctrine of the Trinity. They clarify the deity of Christ, the, the fact that he's fully God, fully man. And so th they continue with this authority of the, of the apostles, the writing, and uh, in order to decide what the doctrine is. Uh, with Rome being the capital of the Roman Empire, the church at Rome gained prominence. So it, it starts asserting its su supremacy over the rest of the churches. Uh, like in Antioch and Alexandria, um, later in Constantinople, <clears throat> and then of course in Jerusalem. So they're, they're, because it's, Rome is at the capital of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is in control, their prominence continues to increase. Um, that's further reinforced by the fact that Constantine, you know, Nero was persecuting Christians in 300 AD. Constantine, by, or sorry, Nero was persecuting uh, in 64, by 300 AD, Constantine has made Christianity a legal religion of Rome. You know, and he, he goes and, and renames uh, Byzantium, Constantinople, and uh, he, he puts this gigantic you know, church center named after him. And, after, and the whole weight of the Roman government is now behind the church. And so for the next 300 years, you know, they continue to, um, the East and West continue to sp sp spar on doctrine. Um, Antioch ar argues with Alexandria over different other doctrines. And um, in 590 AD, this is 
this is what scholars point to as the place where the Catholic Church is actually splitting off from the rest of the Christian Church. So a guy by the name of Pope, Gre Pope Gregory the Great. There's only two great popes, and he's one of them. He instituted a bunch of changes. He consolidated power of the bishops in Rome, um, and which obviously makes all the rest of the churches uh, want to resist that. And so uh, he's exercising, he's gone from proclaiming supremacy to exercising it. So he's enforcing it now. Um, and obviously there's resistance to the supremacy and uh, by the other churches. And then uh, one, of the, one of the notes says that um, at one time or another, every other major church center uh, was charged and convicted with heresy except the, the church in Rome, the bishop in Rome. So at some point, he was like, you're excommunicated, and you're excommunicated, and you're excommunicated. So uh, there was a bunch of, of uh, resistance to that. And so come 10, 1054 AD, the Eastern Church splits from the Western Church. So the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, and then the Western Church is the Roman Catholic Church. So we're starting to divide and split uh, over doctrine and over things that matter and over other things that probably shouldn't matter. We're talking about kings and governments, um, churches asserting authority over kings, kings trying to assert authority over religion. And so by the time we get to 1517, Martin Luther, he comes along seeing all of the things that are wrong, the 95 Thesis, he, he, he posts, and that's the beginning of the split that gives us Protestantism, which is, is what we subscribe to. So every 500 years or so, a major split uh, since the beginning of the early church. So sorry if that was boring, but um, I, I thought it was interesting enough to uh, give you a feel for all the winding and, and how, from the beginning, the Catholic Church has been, has started and then it's growing in prominence. Uh, three more quick ones. Council of Trent, 1546. Bunch of doctrine is decided there, and uh, we'll go into it because we'll, we'll mention uh, the Council of Trent through the rest of the message. Uh, Vatican I, which is 1870, so that's right after the American Civil War. So we're, we're, we're getting towards contemporary dates now. Uh, a bunch of other things were decided. And so we're talking two, almost 2,000 years after the birth of Christ, they're still putting things down, deciding things, and writing things down. Uh, um, and then 1962, Vatican II, where the Catholic Church tries to normalize. Uh, they allow mass to be uh, spoken in a layman's tongue instead of in Latin so that people can understand what's being said. And there's a bunch of other things in Vatican II we'll get to as well. So that's all the dates. Now let's get into it. So before we get into the disagreements, um, I just want to clarify. Um, we have a bunch of basic doctrinal beliefs with Catholics that we agree on. And so I want to not just hammer them for what we disagree, but also acknowledge the things, uh, important things that uh, we agree on. So they're important enough that we don't consider Catholics to be a cult. So a lot of cults revolve around incorrect doctrine around Jesus, around the Trinity, around the Godhead. And to their credit, 
they get they get that stuff right. So let's go over the agreements real quick. <clears throat> so God, uh, they believe in God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the creator, the sustainer of the universe. Um, they believe that God created the universe. Uh, so number one. Number two, um, the Trinity. So this one's huge. There's so many ways to get the Trinity wrong, and, and Catholics still uh, are in agreement with us. Uh, one God who exists eternally in three distinct but co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So lots of other cults will elevate one over the other and, and not get it completely right, and uh, Catholics, I mean, you're still, it's still arguable whether any lame Christian or Catholic fully understands the Trinity, but the doctrines match. So the deity of, and life of Jesus, so that Jesus was fully God, fully man. He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, rose bodily, not just figuratively, from the grave, ascended to heaven, and is re returning uh, to judge mankind. So Catholics believe in the same Jesus we do, so that's huge. Um, every other cult says they believe in Jesus, but it's not that Jesus. Um, number four, future resurrection. So of the bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So at his return, um, the dead in Christ, and everybody will be risen and judged, and their beliefs align with ours on that, at least that, that part. And then lastly, um, and this is huge also, the Bible is inspired infallible word of God. So those are huge agreements, and uh, we welcome their agreement on those. Unfortunately, on that last one, they don't stay there, and so they're going to add a bunch of stuff. So let's, let's get into the disagreements. <clears throat> And so the first one is authority. And I think this one is the source of every other one we're going to talk about. Um, we believe that the inspired word of God, the scripture is the only source of truth. It's the only way we know about God. And that's how we order our, our belief system. That's how we order our life is around the scripture. So as Martin Luther called it, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And so we recognize the word as the authoritative as when we're deciding what our doctrine is. Um, but for the Catholics, they, they believe all that, and then plus, you know. But wait, there's more. They, um, they believe in us. They also hold as equal in authority sacred t tradition. So things that have been passed down. And then this last one, which is, is really, I think, where everything starts to fall apart, is the infallibility, uh, infallible authority. So they believe that Peter was given authority by Christ, and then they've handed that down from pope to pope to pope. And so that the, not, just the, not just the position and not just the, the uh, authority that comes with it, but the actual grace and the... Uh, knowledge and the um, it's 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 more than just the position it's 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 they become the authority kind of you know they they have they immediately uh know and are infallible and uh so then you start making up things right so you start 
I mean, let me step back. Right, right at the beginning, we acknowledge that they don't have they didn't have the scripture right at the beginning. So they're they're pulling from the the scriptures, and there's going to be some tradition that has to get written down right at the beginning. Um, but once the scripture's there, you should stop adding to it. And so they don't stop adding. And so let's go a little bit more into um, the infallibility of the Pope. And so uh, the idea is that anything he says ex cathedra, which means anything he says as part of the church, like he's, he's dictating a bowl or a, a, a decree or a creed, um, those, once they come out, those are infallible. That's just as good as scripture. Unfortunately, as we'll go through here, they start to contradict each other and um, they definitely stray from the Bible. So for all those reasons, just having a person, a human, a man who has other motivations, uh, and it's a miracle we actually still have the Bible really because uh, I was reading through all of the different kingdoms and fights and political struggles and, and everything that went on. Um, the Lord had his, obviously, you know, we have an all-knowing, all-powerful God who preserved it, but there was so much of the time I have to wonder was, you know, they seemed very motivated by the self and by power and, and greed and less by doing what the Lord would have them do. So anyway, I'm, I'm off on a tangent. Um, back to infallibility of the Pope. What he says is... Uh, supposed to be infallible. Uh, so we get to Vatican II, and this, this has a bunch of things that were set out there that uh, delineate the authority and the, the errors in authority. So the first one is that Christ set Peter over apostles to preserve unity. Now the preserving unity part is awesome, um, but the rest of it we're going to deny, right? Peter continues to direct the church through the succession of popes, and the popes have the authority of Peter. The pope is the representative of Christ on earth. The pope is the authority over the church. And then here, these last two get good. No one can deviate without loss of faith and salvation from these teachings. So once they're, they're out there, what they're saying is that you're losing your salvation if you're not going to believe whatever the Pope just said. <clears throat> and lastly, the Pope is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, when in the discharge of the office of pastor and doctor of all Christians by virtue of his authority. So building up a man and choosing a man instead of choosing the scripture and choosing God and choosing Jesus. So when we get to Vatican II, they add to that and say that even the informal teaching and decisions, so not just the ex-cathedral stuff, the informal teaching and decisions made by the Pope must be acknowledged and respected with loyal submission. There's so many problems with this, right? So putting, putting our faith in a man who has, has their own agenda, has their own uh, plan, and is not... I mean, you just can't, you can't continue to add to a religion after, after some point. It needs to be, as, as the, some of the church fathers and some of the churches are like, you know, we, we eventually they, they decided on what the canon of the books were. And once they did that, they stopped adding to the tradition. Um, I, I know that the Catholics uh, view Christ 
made Peter the head of the church in, in, in Matthew 16, 18, right? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And um, we've heard from our pastor how, how um, this, isn't, this isn't an appropriate interpretation of this scripture. And uh, that's not what Jesus was saying here. That was not his intent. And so, but I just want to acknowledge it because it's, it's out there, and that's what they believe. Um, the Catholic view is that Peter was set over the apostles, and they had final authority in determining the doctrine, the tradition, and um, the, the mantle, kind of like, I guess, Elijah to Elisha, right? Picked up the mantle. He actually imbued him with um, the authority of Peter. So that's, that's authority. The second one is the gospel. Our gospel is simple. Uh, by grace alone, through faith alone. That's it. No works. Um, but as, as we'll see in everything with the Catholics, the Catholic Church and what they believe, they're, they keep adding. And uh, so um, their gospel uh, of salvation is not grace alone and faith alone. It requires works, and it requires the process of the seven sacraments. Um, the first one is baptism. Catholics uh, believe this is a requirement for salvation. And they teach uh, that adult baptism isn't necessary. If you were baptized as a baby, you're good to go. So um, we believe, obviously, that this is an act of obedience. It's not an indication of your salvation. It's an indication that, you, that Christ asked us to be baptized, and this is a, a mark of obedience. It's also identification uh, of us personally with Jesus with his death and his burial and his resurrection. When you perform it on an infant, this takes away the main two things that we believe in, right? Because the infant's not obedient to anything. And he's not identifying with anything because he doesn't know what's going on. So uh, baptism, next one, confirmation. So confirmation uh, completes the sacrament of baptism. So this is something that uh, a believer would do as they come into maturity. It can be a... a symbol of coming of age, um, the bishop. So the first one's done by the priest. This one's done by the bishop, laying on the head of the believer. And uh, that's believed that laying on is conveying the Holy Spirit and that empowers them to work out the rest of their faith throughout the rest of their life. Um, from an act of obedience and act of maturity, this one matches more closely with our baptism. Obviously, there's no water involved. Um, third one, the Eucharist. So the Holy Communion, also called the Mass. It's considered an outgoing, an ongoing sacrifice of Christ. And here again, we've got people, I don't know why they do this, making stuff up that doesn't need to happen, right? So the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it's the actual presence of Jesus so that the bread and the blood become the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And so he, every time they do Mass, so every Sunday or whenever they do it, Jesus is being re-sacrificed for 2,000 years. That's just, um, as a Protestant Catholic, as a Protestant believer, that's, uh, it's offensive, right? So Christ died, sacrificed once. It was good for all time to do it every week isn't isn't what was intended 
So we believe that, that the communion is symbolic, uh, just like in, in baptism. Christ died once, his sacrifice was sufficient for all time, and we, we don't need to sacrifice him again and again. Uh, fourth up, confession or penance. So Roman Catholicism teaches that, the, that Christ forgives sin through a priest at confession and penance. An outward sign that the confessor has been forgiven is a statement of absolution from the priest. So it's the priest who gives you the absolution. This requirement denies the position of Christ, uh, his work on the cross. Uh, we have a direct line of communication with the Father, and, a mediate, and he is you know, our mediator between God and us. You know, 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? Simple. And this is the same Bible they attest to believe in, but um, there's a bunch of these. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the, and to help in time of need. So we don't need to go to somebody in order to get to God. We can go there on our own. We can draw near to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us. He has sanctified us. He has washed our, with the blood. He has washed us clean so that we can be in the presence. 1 John 1, 1.9, uh, greatest hits here at the church. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, not the priest, God. We go straight to God. Okay, these last three um, are kind of optional sacraments because it depends on where you are in life and uh, where you go. So holy orders, it's a sacrament of, of uh, ordination as a bishop, a priest, a deacon, um, but this was interesting. So the ordination confers on a man the spiritual power and grace to sanctify others. So they're getting, so this is what I'm talking about. When they pass it down from Peter, they're, they're getting more than a position. They're getting the grace to sanctify others. They're getting the power to decide doctrine. And that's all right. Uh, next up, matrimony. So marriage, symbol of Christ in the church. Um, as such, uh, uh, because you know it's it's indivisible. It's you know, the Catholics don't recognize divorce because of that. Which that part's awesome. Yay, Catholics! Um, interestingly, Vatican II, they, you know, they adjust they adjust their sacraments as they go through the centuries. But in Vatican II, they acknowledge that marriage is not just for procreation. I like that. Um, anointing the sick, so last rites, uh, or um, unction. This is where the, the bishop or the priest goes in and, and ministers to somebody who's dying, uh, prepares their soul for eternity. Um, in Vatican II, they start lessening that to just be like, go in and minister to the sick. They don't have to be dying. <clears throat> so those are the seven sacraments. So. All of this is workspace. You need to do all of these, or at least the first five, uh, in order to move along on your progress of salvation.
Otherwise, you're going to end up in purgatory longer, but we'll get there. So, uh, I said all that. So, the, so I'm going to go through some verses here. So, the point here is it's, for Catholics, it's works-based. And obviously, our point is it's faith alone and grace alone. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by, a, by faith apart from works of the law. So we don't need anything but. Romans 4.3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the belief, the faith is all that was needed for Abraham to be considered righteous. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Uh, we're going to get into this one again later. Um, the Catholics aren't so happy to just write off, to have this big work of Jesus and then nothing else. And then we just have to believe. They want to put more into it. Uh, Galatians, I lost my place. Sixteen. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's pretty clear. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I won't read that. You guys know that. Um, next up, purgatory. Here's how the Catholic Church describes purgatory. A place or state in which are detained the souls of those who die in grace, so believers who die in grace in friendship with God, but with the blemish of venial sin. I had to look up venial sin because I didn't know what it was. And um, it's the little sins, actually. So the mortal sins, you, you, would, you don't get saved. So the venial sins, or the hate and the greed and stuff, are what you go to purgatory for, I guess. Um, the blemish of venial sin, or the temporal debt of sin unpaid, here the soul is purged, cleansed, readied for eternal union with God in heaven. So it's suffering. So... Um, most of the Renaissance paintings of purgatory is fire. So the two components of purgatory are pain, suffering through pain, and suffering through separation from God. The length of suffering in purgatory is determined by how much you sinned and then didn't pay for it on earth. Um, Catholics believe uh, the time in purgatory can be shortened, though, through prayers and good works of those who are still living. So prayers of, of the people who are still living, you can pray for your poor sinner friend who's dead, and it'll shorten his time in purgatory. <clears throat> Catholics point to 1 Corinthians 3, 14, and 15. So here's another misreading of Scripture. If the work that anyone has built... On the, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So I'm not even sure 
I don't even sure that it says much about purgatory. But I'm biased. I agree. I mean, I admit I'm, I'm biased, but I don't really, when we're talking about rewards and, and you know, this is, this is the, the judgment and our works go through, our whole life goes through, and the things that are important, the eternal things that we've done in our life will remain after everything else gets burned up. And so that's, that's how we interpret that scripture. Not that once we die, we're going to be burning until all of our sins are burned away. So once again, the, the, this Catholic doctrine is denying the whole point of our religion, right? The sufficiency of Jesus, what he did on the cross. It takes man's traditions and it elevates them up here and goes, ah, you know, Jesus, you were pretty good, but you're not enough. <clears throat> But the Bible teaches us exactly the opposite. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all we need. All is forgiven. There is nothing else required to enter heaven. Where am I? Jude 124. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Hebrews 10.14 For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again, this is just beat a dead horse. Christ isn't sacrificed every week. Is this once. Once for all. <clears throat> again, we see uh, Romans 5.1 fits here as well. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So this is Paul talking and saying, um, in ESV, at least in my mind, it gets lost. It's absent with the body, present with the Lord. Is what This is the same verse. Uh, but... Um, in ESV, it just says home with the Lord. But the point is, there isn't any place in between here in heaven. You don't go to purgatory. Philippians 121 uh, through 23. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose... I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul's making a choice between two places. Right? He's not making a choice, but if he had a choice is what he's saying. And there, again, there's no purgatory there. So how about the thief on the cross, right? Surely, surely he's a contender for purgatory, right? Because he, he was a thief, and then he died. He, he, he asked Jesus for forgiveness right before he died. What did Jesus say? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It starts with P, but it's not purgatory. Paradise. Revelation 2.7 talks about paradise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who con conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is 
in the paradise of God. So, purgatory, no. Next up, Mary. Mary's position, occupy, um, the position Mary occupies in theology of Catholic Church is the result of centuries of development. So she's evolved and changed um, up through the Council of Trent, which was by 1546. So for 1,500 or years, you know, they're still figuring out and making things up about Mary. Um, when man is left to make new doctrine, some authority passed down from another man, it's guaranteed to go astray, right? So we're, we all know ourselves, right? And heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? So why would you give this much authority to humans? It just doesn't make sense. Uh, so here, the, the Catholic Church is inappropriately elevating Mary. So I'm just going to go through them. Um, so I don't run out of time. So here, here are some of the most glaring er errors regarding Mary. So um, first one, she was immaculately conceived. So I had an argument with my Jewish friend a long time ago about this. My Jewish friend married a Catholic, and he's like, yeah, Mary was immaculately conceived. I'm like, no, Jesus was immaculately conceived. And I'm like, you got it wrong. You don't know anything about religion. And then I looked it up, and they believe that Mary was immaculately conceived so that she doesn't have Adam's sin, which that part makes sort of sense, but it's not true. Um, but that's what they believe. So she was also immaculately conceived so she could immaculately conceive Jesus. Uh, that Mary le lived a sinless life. So we have a bunch of examples of this is not true. So in Luke 1... 46 and 47, uh, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary, from the get-go, recognized she needed a Savior, so she recognized she was a sinner. We have this part of Romans Road that tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. And you're like, what about Jesus? But Jesus is God. So that brings us to the next one. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then um, if, you, if you look in Luke 2, 22 through 24, it talks about, uh, this is right after Jesus is born, and then Mary and Joseph go to the priest and to offer sacrifices for um, the firstborn, and, and according, according to Jewish law. But... She's going to offer sacrifices. You don't need to offer sacrifices if you're sinless. Um, another greatest hit of Mary. Um, both of my girls have argued with people at high school about this one. Um, she remained a virgin her whole life. Um, even though, you know, Jesus talks about having brothers and sisters. Uh, but that's, that's, and again, these, most of these came from the Council of Trent in 1546. So they had 1,500 years to, to come up with this stuff. Um, the next one, just like Jesus, she was bodily assumed into heaven. And then this is then the last one. This is, this is the worst one. Co-redeemer with Christ. 
and I'm, I'm not making these up. These are actually in, if you go to the, I, I didn't realize that Catholic, they have this huge like website and all their, their, their laws and their, everything is there. It's pretty amazing. I didn't know till a couple weeks ago. Co-redeemer with Christ. So she's, they call her the redemptrix. Um, she has a part in us being saved. And again, this is man's ideas, uh, making up what doctrine they want. And most importantly, uh, denigrating the work of Jesus on the cross. Last up, the Bible. So it's, it's amazing, actually. There's a hard, whole chart I found. There's uh, six or seven columns of different versions of Christianity, Ethiopian and Protestant and Ethan Orthodox and uh, obviously Catholic and a few others I can't remember. And then it lists all the books and which ones they have and which ones they don't. I didn't realize there was that much disagreement. Um, but Protestants... Us folks here, our Bible has 66 books, 43 authors, um, and uh, it was decided in 397 um, at a council. And once it was decided, 300 years after Christ, um, we haven't looked back, which is interesting because we didn't become Protestants until 1517. Um, but early on, even the Catholics um, had, had decided that those were the books. And so um, at the Council of Trent, it's the greatest hit, um, they added 11 Jewish books. And these books were written between 200 BC and 100 AD. Tobit and First and Second Maccabees and Baruch and, and a bunch of others. And this is, this is what they said after they adopted these in 1546. They, this is part of the decree. If anyone, however, should not accept these said books as sacred and canonical, entire with all their parts, and if both knowingly and deliberately he should condemn the aforesaid tradition, the books they just adopted, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, right? So they just adopted them. 1546, but now don't disagree with us. So here, here are some of the reasons why most Christian religions don't subscribe to the Apocrypha. I didn't explain that. Apocrypha, books in the middle, the hidden books. You guys already know all that. Um, so some of the reasons, neither Jesus nor any of the New Testament writers ever mentioned or quoted any of the books. So the New Testament writers and Jesus often quoted Psalms and, and throughout the Bible, um, but never any of the apocryphal books. Uh, second up, uh, apocryphal books contain historical and geographic and chronological errors. So things are just wrong in these. where They're not in the rest of the Bible. So just one example, um, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar being king in Nineveh, which he wasn't king in Nineveh. He was king in Babylon. <clears throat> um, next up, the Jews, the Jews who actually wrote these books, they didn't consider them 
inspired. They didn't include them in the Hebrew Bible. So why do the Catholics venerate them? Um, next up, there's no predictive prophecy. So most of the books of the Bible have prophecy in them that is then later fulfilled. Um, there's none in the apocryphal books. Um, they never claim to be the word of God. So uh, many of the books, as they were written, this is the word of God. These don't claim that. Um, they were rejected by the early church fathers. Um, um, one of the church fathers, Jerome, uh, who wrote the Latin Vulgate. So he's the first one who translated the Bible uh, from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And then the, the Latin Vulgate is actually the Bible that the Catholics, for, the, for a long time, recognized as the only book, the only Bible. But Jerome didn't include the apocryphal books in his Bible. And then after he died, they put them in anyway. Um, there's a bunch of uh, non-biblical or heretical doctrines in these books. Um, things like prayer, um, it's basically justifying all the things I just talked about um, that we don't agree with. So prayer for the dead, purgatory, the fact that salvation can be attained through good works, uh, and then my favorite, um, <clears throat> salvation can be achieved by giving money to the poor. <clears throat> so in Tobit 3.9 and Tobit 4.11, if you want to look those up. And finally, um, it, the apocryphal books weren't declared authoritative until 1546 at the Council of Trent. So why, after all that time, do you think they were um, they decided to make them canon. What happened about 40 years earlier? The Reformation. Martin Luther saying, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. And then they're like, I got a solution for this. We'll just take all these books that say these things, stick them in the Bible. Now the Bible says them. So it was a counter to the Reformation. And so there was an active... As, as part of as a part of a response to the Reformation, um, they went on alert, full alert, and they were their, they saw their religion crumbling, and they, they were successful in bringing back um, a bunch of different countries back to Roman Catholicism who had initially gone over to Protestantism. <clears throat> so the apocryphal books, um, again, we have men making up doctrine um, under the auspices that I'm the embodiment of Peter and his authority, and I can make whatever rules I want. Um, these are the results. Well, you get a lot of doctrinal error. You get inconsistencies. So I didn't go over all of them because I probably bored you guys enough already, but um, you know they're, they're doing decrees left and right, changing things all the way up to 1962. Actually, there, there are actually some more after 1962, but whatever the Pope says goes even now. So just in, in summary then, um, the impact of the Catholic Church. So we need to recognize the impact of the Catholic Church. And so I, I've been a little glib, it, it shouldn't be. Um, you know, for the first centuries, and, and God chose to use the Catholic Church to preserve a good chunk of the Bible. I know it has a bunch of stuff added on from the Catholic Church, but God used that. 
So through the centuries, the message of Jesus, the God-man who came to earth as a human, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, conquered sin and death, um, that message was preserved and propagated in large part by the Catholic Church. And so um, we need to recognize that um, the word of God was taken to Africa, it was taken to Asia, it was taken to South America. Um, as I was saying earlier, it's hard to say how much of that was for power and how much of that was for God. Um, I, won't, I, won't, I won't opine on that right now. Um, the decision of the early church to give authority to men, uh, an individual man, and declare the ten those men then make up the tenets of the Catholic faith, uh, write new doctrine um, that subjects the Catholic Church to the weakness of man. And so it was easy for the truth to be subverted, and so it was to gain power. Um, there was lots of governments and countries and wars and, and all of this stuff. Uh, was intertwined and decisions were made to change doctrine, to, to, to make others powerful and others less powerful. Um, so we're left with over a billion people who call themselves Catholics. So, so the question I have, and I don't have an answer for this, or I think I have an answer, but I, I hope I'm wrong. Um, they've been exposed to enough of the truth, right? Because we went over the agreements. They've been exposed to enough of the truth but is it enough to, to save them? Or have they been exposed to just enough of the truth to inoculate them and prevent them from ever being saved? So that's, that's the question I have. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for um, this place you've given us. I uh, thank you for each of these people that's here, Lord. I thank you for you giving us a fire and a burden for your truth and your word, Lord, that those would always be preached from this pulpit. Lord, we ask for a blessing on the evening and on the fellowship, and we just thank you for your word and your truth. And again, once, most of all, Lord, for, for sending your son, Jesus, Lord, that we can be saved just by believing in you. Thank you and praise you, Father, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.